Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello everybody and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I don't have a co-host, so I'm flying solo today, but I'm in good company. Um, it's a great day to be here. Elections yesterday were, uh, I think... Everybody was really happy with the sea of red that flooded across Canada. Uh, it was a very thrilling moment, and it was really excited to see such a great voting turnout. It's the highest since 1993, so that's in my lifetime that I can remember anyway. It's the best vote we've had. Um, so that's a, a really exciting time. Congratulations to Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party uh, for your majority government. You kind of look like him. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> He looks very attractive, so I'm going to take that as a great compliment. Um, anyway, guys, let's get down to the science of things. I'm here today with Sonia Van Newland. Um, she is a year three PhD student studying with Cam Rogers uh, in, ana- in the anatomy program. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you do. So, like you said, I'm a third-year PhD student. I hang out in the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology, and I most of my research is focused on how our undergraduate human anatomy students learn the content of the of the body. So, how do undergraduate uh, anatomy students learn question. the content of the body? Um, as we are, you know, entering this new technological era, we have a bunch of incoming students who are more interested in getting involved in the technological side. They want um, different e-learning tools to learn to learn the human body, which works great for us because our university, along with a bunch of others, are really constricted in terms of the supplies and the space that we have to host students in an anatomy lab with specimens and cadavers and so on. So in order to cater to this incoming group of tech-savvy students, we've really started to rely on um, different e-learning tools. And I wanted to know how effective these e-learning tools were in teaching our students human anatomy. Because to me, it seemed like universities were investing in these tools simply because they looked really flashy. And I was wondering, and I had a question, and I wondered if anybody had looked at the effectiveness of these e-learning tools before. And it turns out they hadn't, so I took a, I took a swipe at it. All right. So you're, how, do you, how do you measure, I guess, the effectiveness of these e-learning tools? I mean, like, do, do you stratify the students in your class and like, you're going to use e-learning tools and you're going to get real cadavers and I'm going to look at your grades? <laughs> well, I wish I could do that, but the ethics board tells me that I cannot. Um, so instead, what I did is I took a uh, psychological approach to the whole situation. So I used a, basically a design an experimental design called dual task and dual task basically involves students doing um two tasks at the same time um and so it's kind of like um basically asking students to multitask and so i have them do a very very simple observation task like a word that's flashing up on a screen and they have to identify whether the word 
that's presented, it's usually a color word, is the same as the color that it's presented in, the ink color. So does the word blue flash in the ink color blue? And they have to make a decision about that. And I look at how quickly they can make that decision when all of their mental resources are just devoted to that task. And then I get them to learn from an e-learning tool. And I see how those their reaction times, their ability to make that judgment call, how that differs when they're doing when they're using these e-learning tools at the same time. So you're using the word color task as kind of like a baseline parameter. For those of you who are listening, that's called the Stroop test, by the way. Um, and, and you're using that as like a baseline parameter of their cognitive like, abilities. Yeah. And then you're comparing that to their ability with these different resources? Yeah. So the Stroop tasks works on a part of our, a part of our brain called the working memory. And the working memory is, uh, we have to process all new information through our working memory before it can be stored in the long-term memory. So we need this, this system to be up and functional in order to be able to learn. The problem is, is that working memory has a very limited uh, amount of resources. So if we overwhelm the working memory and we consume all those resources, there's nothing left over to handle new information. And our, in order to protect our brain, kind of, our, mem- our working memory system just shuts down. Well, that stops the transfer of knowledge into our long-term memory, and that effectively stops our learning process. So by having the students complete a Stroop test, that's that color change that we were talking about, um, we have them, we're looking at how well they can divide their mental resources and how much of those that they have. So this Stroop task would take would take a consistent effort. It would use the same amount of working memory resources no matter when we had them complete it. And so we find out how quickly we can exhaust the rest of their working memory resources. And so if their working memory resources are exhausted very quickly by an e-learning program which they can't figure out to how to use or is difficult to manipulate or is difficult to interpret, then we would expect that they wouldn't be learning as much. And we can actually quantify their learning by giving them a test beforehand to see how much they know and then a test after we introduce them to the e-learning tool to see how much um, knowledge that they actually gained from that whole exercise. Okay, so the test before and after, they're different tests, right? Or are the no, same one? so if we make them different, it actually makes it di- more difficult to quantify. Okay. We want them to be as- answering the same questions. We are a little bit sneaky and we ask them <laughs> to do a grade five level math test after they do their e-learning, well, after they do oh. their learning task. So we wipe their short-term memory because they're busy trying to figure out how to, you know, subtract 21 from six and get a decent answer, which <laughs> we're not that... Uh, we're not usually geared up for grade five level math in, in university anymore. I, I'm certainly not. <laughs> okay. So that's actually really cool. Um, so now what are the types of e-learning resources that have been made available, might be in use right now uh, to the students, and what types are you comparing? So I'm looking at two commercial re- uh, e-learning resources, one that's called Netter's 3D Interactive Anatomy. I love Netter. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I find it's really good for actually those who already know human anatomy um, because it's relatively difficult to use. It has quite a high interactivity, meaning that it has lots of buttons that the students can interact 
uh, with the program through. It's upwards of 20. So there's 20 different ways to interact with the program. And sometimes you have to press those buttons sequentially in order to get another function to appear. So it's not necessarily the most intuitive system. But it also has the ability for you to rotate structures upon any axis. So you can look at the heart from the front, from uh, five degrees to the left, all the way, all the way around back to the front of the heart again. Um, and we compared that e-learning tool to Atom Interactive Anatomy, which is much more like a 2D, 2D textbook image. And um, they simply use a slider bar to dissect down through different layers. And these layers just flip like pages of a textbook. And you can only see key points like the front of the body and the sides of the body and the back of the body. There's none of this five degree increment um, shenanigans. So uh, Adam Interactive is very simple in regards to Netter's 3D. Now these um, e-learning tools, they cover the same content. They're just very dissimilar in terms of appearance. Um, so those are, that's a range of commercial e-learning tools out there. A lot of universities are getting on the technology train and making their own e-learning tools, which I think is really great, but we also need to start testing those and seeing if they're effective. Because just because we think we know what our students need doesn't actually mean that it's working for them. We need to make sure we're getting feedback from them on a constant basis. Yeah, I think the thing that would worry me if, if everyone just develops their own thing is that then there's no standardization. Um, and that's, I, I'm in neuroscience, so like when you look at brain imaging studies, there's, you know, if you, you compare different people using different types of scanners, uh, using different methods of quantification and different analyses, it becomes very difficult to look at the data and compare one study from another. So now if we're talking about education, which matters, people, um, you know, and, and you're talking about students who are paying thousands of dollars, possibly, just to take one course mm -hmm. in anatomy, mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, these are potentially the future scientists, future physicians who are going to need to know this stuff and know it well, um, then, then it becomes really difficult to say, like, you know, if you went to Western versus you went to U of T versus you went to Cornell, you know, who gets a different education because of these different systems. So that's a, it's a really good point that you're bringing up um, with the different systems. Mm -hmm. There's a range, and we just need to make sure that no matter what we're introducing our students to, that it's effective. Just like the same way when we implement uh, medical procedures in the, in the hospital, we make sure that it's effective before we do it. And I think we need to take a similar approach to education, that we need to make sure the way we're teaching our students is effective for them now. That might be mean going back to the original way that we learned, uh, probably we learned anatomy, which was from a textbook. Um, um, but maybe not. Or maybe we need to start giving students an option. Maybe we should be giving them a survey at the very start and saying and that, you know, kind of like a Cosmo survey where you can go down through where you can go down through the check boxes. And then, you know, if you scored eight out of 10, then we could recommend I think you should start off learning from the textbook. This is what our research shows. And then maybe in a few weeks we can graduate you up to learning from an e-learning tool once you've learned the basics of the human body. I fully agree. Um, do you think that, I guess, the, the tool effectively that you're developing right now with the Stroop test, anatomy learning tool, math test, um, anatomy test at the beginning as well there, <laughs> followed by an anatomy test, um, do you think that that could become the standardization method then that should be or could be used or something similar to it anyway um, 
in, in all these different institutions to standardize or compare their different um, methods of teaching anatomy because... I, I think it's a good start. I think that um, it might not be the... Uh, quickest way to get the answers that we need. It's still uh, very time intensive. It takes me about an hour and a half to test a single student, and I did 75 of them from uh, in two and a half weeks. So I lived at the university. And, oh my gosh! And it was just me. So it's not the. It wasn't the most. Uh, it was more time consuming, I think, that I anticipated, but it yielded incredible results. And we get. Um, almost second-by-second second data on how these students are responding to our Stroop test, which really allows me to look at the different peaks in their learning and seeing maybe they're having trouble looking at the anterior aspect of the wrist versus the posterior, the back of the wrist. Um, in, in the literature, there's a lot of talk about using surveys instead of using a Stroop test. So maybe if you had a box pop up on the screen five times throughout the learning session and ask the student to gauge their own uh, cognitive load. So how, how hard are you working right now in order to learn this material? That's another way. And they're looking at using that more frequently because it can be, it can be implemented in a classroom. You would, I wouldn't have to bring somebody into a specific room and test them for an hour and a half to get that information. But there's still questions out there about how well can our own students subjectively rate their own effort when they learn. Yeah, that's a, I have my qualms a lot of the time <laughs> with, uh, with subjective data. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, how do you feel about this? And that's, it's good, mm -hmm. but at the same time, what you're doing is a really... Like it is a, a much more objective measure, and mm -hmm. it would be probably really great to have the subjective and the objective because I always like comparing the two. I, I agree. <laughs> I think in educational research, um, it needs to be a blend of quantitative and qualitative because there there's lots of information we can pull from numbers, from statistics, from means, and um, and the all the data we get from the numbers. But there's also a lot that we can gain from just listening to the students themselves, and or qualitative data can still be quantified using different um, techniques like um, mapping the language and seeing how often different topics are brought up and running statistics on that, which um, my uh, the PhD student who just graduated from the Rogers lab, Stephanie Attardi, spent her thesis doing. And she got a lot of interesting feedback about how students enjoy learning anatomy using, um, we were using Blackboard Collaborate at the time. We were offering an anatomy course online. And so that was, I think that was one of the first times that um, qualitative uh, data had, be, had been quantified in that way. And people were very skeptical of it, but I think it still tells more of a story than just the numbers alone. And if we can stitch that together, we kind of get the best of both worlds. Okay. That's a, that is a good point. Like, I guess we, we have, <laughs> have to I take into account. Yet? Yeah. <laughs> So, so these are undergraduates that you're you're looking at. Yeah. Um, are are other people who would be learning anatomy, like clinical anatomy students or medical students, <laughs> are they using the same e resources? And and are you guys going to be comparing them as well to see the different, I guess, populations of students? How, how each of them finds it? Well, e-learning is mostly just relegated to our undergraduate students right now. Um, we give our medical students the first crack at getting into the anatomy lab and working with hands-on with the specimens themselves. Um, but the medical curriculum is very integrated nowadays. So while they, our medical students study human anatomy, they do it in the context of physiology and biochemistry 
dexterity and you know movements of the body and things like that but they don't necessarily get the detail that was taught 30 40 years ago in regards to the human body so that has its benefits and it has its drawbacks we see a lot more um doctors coming back and asking hey can i see get into the anatomy lab again i'd love to have another look at this one region that i just didn't understand um so i think in that sense e-learning might be able to play a role after medical students have graduated maybe if we could um either invest in something or build something new that is tailored to physicians um, that helps them get the anatomy and the at the level of detail that they need, that that could be an option for e-learning. But I think it's best to stick our, keep our medical students in that anatomy lab as long as possible. Yeah, uh, could it be that anatomy is just, like I know that like from what I can tell traditionally in medicine, anatomy is just a, is a huge memorization task and a huge uh, cognitive load. Could it possibly be that uh, because of that, people like you need like a refresher course just because you know you forget the thousands of things you need to remember or is anatomy just too much for one person to remember and should like maybe digital aids or some sort of cybernetic type thing be more of a common usage well it's a really good question anatomy is full of details anatomists love details um and the body is not easy um i know if it's too much for one person. It's certainly what we expect of our physicians nowadays and have always expected, that they know the human body. Um, I think there are better ways to uh, help our students learn it. I don't we think we've hit that, that golden zone yet. I think we're getting there. I, there's a funny story, actually, in my undergrad that I heard. My anatomy teacher's father had been a physician, and I think he was learning medicine in like the 1940s and what they made them do in a test was they had like a bag and they had some like of the really tiny little bones of the wrist in a bag in different bags I guess and you had to reach in feel the bone and know which one it was by touch and that's like unnecessary complexity on a test (laughs) but think about how well they would have had to know that to do it and that's what was expected of them Yeah, and that is what we aren't doing now. And is that necessarily a good thing? I don't know, but it's it's changed. Yeah, I think um, we'd have to pull the medical field on that one. <laughs> um, whether the students now feel that they're ready in terms of their anatomical knowledge, um, I get the feeling no, but I also understand that it's hard to fit it in when you have no time. We have them learning about mental health and all these other different avenues, different courses that didn't necessarily exist 30 to 40 years ago. Okay. So, I guess we've we've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Yeah. Um, what are you finding in this in this cognitive load in terms of um, how well each tool is doing? So there is an increased cognitive load. Yeah. But what what does that mean in terms of their ability to learn? So it turns out that tools like Netter's 3D that require students to use a lot of buttons in order to interact with it, um, and tools that allow a student to see a structure from multiple um, from multiple angles is actually more disorienting and more confusing to students who have a very poor ability to mentally rotate objects. And we call that ability 
spatial ability. So people who have poor spatial ability tend to get confused and disoriented much quicker than those with high spatial ability. And so when we looked at the post-test scores or the performance scores of the students who participated, Netter's 3D actually disadvantaged those with low, low spatial ability. So they actually had poor scores than those with high spatial ability. But when we looked at Adam, Adam didn't differentiate on that scale. So, I mean, it didn't differentiate against poor spatial ability, uh, people with poor spatial ability, but maybe it disadvantaged those with high spatial ability. Wow. So it's it's this <laughs> complex net, and I'm not really sure that we have solved if um, e-learning tools are ideal for learning, and that's the next step in my research, is to compare it to more traditional methods. If you held a skeleton or a humerus or an arm in your hand, how well would you learn? What would be the cognitive load? Uh, is there any sort of shortage on supply on that end that like would require some sort of alternative? Like, are we running out of cadavers or things to show off? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that donation in terms of the medical community um, is, it's still pretty high, but we have a lot of med students and we make sure that all the med students at all the schools in Ontario have an opportunity to dissect um, a human cadaver. So, but we can easily meet that resource demand by using 3D printers to print bones. Um, so maybe they didn't come from a real, uh, from, they're not true, a true skeleton, which are actually very expensive to buy, but something more durable and something that can be replaced easily and something they don't have to be worried about manipulating and, and, and me messing around with their hands with. Wow. So I have a question about these e-tools, actually. So yeah. you've compared two. One of them sounds like it's really difficult just to use. The yes. user interface is challenging. Yeah. Is this an older e-resource? Because now... I, I have apps on my iPhone for, like, neuroanatomy, and I can take a brain, I can, you know, enlarge it, shrink it, spin it around, look at it from any way, which way. Um, so if you were to compare what might be to be considered a highly plastic but also uh, very intuitive tool that, like, that you could use on an iPad mm -hmm. or a touchscreen, um, do you think that the cognitive load associated with that one would be as high as the Netter's one? That's because... We can do things now that we couldn't do historically, yeah. and it's going to take some time for the technology to catch up. Well, it's a really good question. Um, I think that the usability of an interface is something that we don't necessarily look at or companies don't necessarily look at when they're um, building educational resources. Um, I did a bunch of research into usability, and that's basically how easy it is for the user to interact with the interface and get the program to do what the user wants it to do. Um, and there's all this talk about usability testing and, and how it's the gold standard and we need to be doing more for it. But there's not a lot of resources out there. And when I pulled a lot of the companies, they said we have one guy. One guy who's completely dedicated to the usability of our interface. Epic fail <laughs> companies. Which, which, is, which uh, appears to me like we're not doing as much as we could. And this is where I think the connection or reaching out to industry or the, the connection between academia and industry can really make a difference in terms of the products that we're giving to our upcoming generation of physicians or neuroscientists or researchers. So this is, I think that usability is a very easy avenue we could go down that is not being accessed right now. And it's almost taking it back to an engineering, a computer engineering perspective, which I think is neglected when we look at education. 
that that's amazing, and I completely agree with that. And that sounds like that you could be eligible for a MyTech scholarship. Yeah, I know, uh, go you, on for ages. You get some funding there. Um, well, that's really good because I, I mean, what we're talking about right now and increasing um, numbers of, of students and medical students and undergrad anatomy students, mm-hmm. um, there's going to be an increasing demand for cadavers and there's only so many 3D printers we can keep running around the clock exactly. and only so many people dying and donating their bodies to science and the priorities have to be somewhere. Um, but I agree that to enhance that experience even to people who have access or to give further experience to people who may only have access to a textbook in the library, mm-hmm. um, that these tools will be incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, the better you guys get at your jobs, the less cadavers you have to use to train yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll sell the medical community on that one, at least not the one here at this university. <laughs> oh. I think they'll always have to... There's always The better they get at their jobs... The, m- the more people they'll save, yes, but they'll always need to train more people to continue saving the people. This is true. And it'll just be harder and harder to get access <laughs> to those cadavers. Yeah. So then the doctors actually get worse and then more come in. It's like a, like a rebalancing cycle. <laughs> <laughs> You've twisted my brain. <laughs> so I guess another kind of thing that I was thinking about earlier um, would be in terms of these e-resources, what about something now like Oculus Rift? And and you can go right in, like, looking at it in 3D pretty much as if you're, you know, on the operating table. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the that will go further and that we'll, we'll get to the point where you can do a virtual surgery or a virtual dissection on a full cadaver one day um, and that that will hopefully not take too much of a cognitive yeah. load <laughs> yeah. on the students, but that that could revolutionize uh, anatomy teaching as well. Well, with Oculus Rift, you're still very much depending on on their ability to sp- spatially rotate themselves in, in, a, in, an, in an environment. And if we have uh, half of our students who can't do that very well, the question that needs to come before that is, can we train spatial ability? Can we train them to be better at, look, at mentally rotating objects and thus being more comfortable in a three-dimensional dimensional um atmosphere um that's like all virtual because obviously we're in a three-dimensional atmosphere right now (laughs) um but um and there's research going on right now about can we train spatial ability um and it's going on i vic roach out of an out of the department in anatomy and cell biology is looking at um if videotaping if videotaping um surgeries in in 3d using one of those cool avatar cameras that they use to film avatar does that make it easily more easily understandable when we add the uh, the dimension of depth and she found out that no it's not it's not working as well as we anticipated so i don't know if the oculus rift uh (laughs) will be the be all end all um i think it's just another avenue that we need to try and that we'll never know unless we do these research studies and figure it out all right, we have like two minutes left, so I have time for maybe one more quick yeah. question uh, before Tristan gets mad at me. <laughs> but uh, so all of these e-resources are based purely on the visual input, like yes. what you can see. Yeah. Um, if you were a surgeon in the OR or if you're uh, you know, a general practitioner who's trying to feel for a problem on a patient uh, and you need to know your anatomy, this, it is tactile. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I mean, I guess, 
how how limiting are these e-resources for people who might be more tactile oriented um, versus people who are very visually Visual. oriented? I think that's another question. That's another great research question. You want to join my research group? <laughs> you got your own PhD to I'm, finish? I'm in. I'll do a postdoc <laughs> with you guys. Um, I think that is an excellent question. And I think we need to figure out how many people are tactile learners, how much of the population or student population are tactile learners. Um, because if that's the case, we're probably disadvantaging them with the standard lectures as of right now. Um, e-learning tools are visual, so they disadvantage those who are colorblind. They disadvantage those who are tactile learners. Um, they disadvantage quite a few people. Um, so I don't think I think they're an option for a subset of learners. And this is what we're learning through educational research is that we can't treat everybody the same and that maybe we need to start making these Cosmo quizzes in order to better guide our students into how they're going to learn more effectively, even though they might be used to the more standard write or like memorize and regurgitate um, form of learning. All right. So I guess the bottom line is what science can learn from Cosmo. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Thank you so much. I think oh, that's all the time much. that we have for today. It was great having you on the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.